राशि तस company on NTS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Otega Uagba. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women, and I'm also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, a modern career guide for working women that you can find on Amazon or all good bookstores. Joining me on today's show is award-winning journalist, chart-topping podcaster and best-selling author Dolly Alderton. Chances are you've already read or at least heard about her phenomenally successful debut book, Everything I Know About Love. But just in case you've been hiding under a rock for the past year, Everything I Know About Love is an unflinchingly honest account of Dolly's roaring 20s, as told through the various relationships, friendships, flat shares and nights outs that have defined her, the paperback edition of which is out now, complete with an additional chapter on turning 30. As a long-time columnist for the Sunday Times Style and co-host of pop culture and current affairs podcast The Hilo Show, she's become something of a patron saint for millennial women everywhere. And given the year she's had, Sunday Times bestseller, sold at national tour and a mention on University Challenge, I was keen to find out what the past 12 months have taught her about work, success and life in general. Also coming up, an Ask Otega segment featuring a listener who's found herself on a graduate scheme that she's absolutely hating and not sure about the best way out. Before we get into that though, here's my chat with Dolly. The Hilo is a business and it employs people mm. and it has an agent mm. who acts as a sort of manager and I would say every day of my life I'm talking for about half an hour to an hour about this business it's f- for a one hour podcast every week it is you know a, a it takes a lot of running and thought and strategy I don't think people realize how no long how much how much time it takes to put together a tightly edited hour or 70 minutes of yeah. audio content yeah and also to come up with your topics and to make sure that you've got money that's being made with sponsorship and mm-hmm. ad revenue to make sure that everything is uh, that that all aligns editorially to organize live events to be in contact with your listenership you know it's it's a it's a big undertaking and I look back now on for the because we did Pandoli as well, which was something we did for the Sunday Times style, where we pitched that podcast to the Sunday did you? Times. Yeah, this is like a thing constantly that I realise is that everything that I everything in the last five years that I've done in my work, I've had to beg someone to let me do it. Other than my column, we wrote up a treatment for Pandoli. We have the original treatment there of a proposal. This is when podcasts were quite new, and we had to go beg the Sunday Times to give us the resources to do that. And then we had to take it independently and do similar pitching um, and source all these brands on our own. You know, we sort, sourced NARS on our own, Google, mm, wow. Sainsbury's. We did this all on our own of us cold calling brands, finding out email addresses and cold calling. I had absolutely no idea. I, I, mean, I Obviously, I assume now you get a lot of people approaching you, but I suppose in those early days, you kind of have to go yeah. to them and make your case. Because and, and work out, pluck a number out of the air per yeah. week of what we're worth. Value our business literally by licking our finger and sticking it in the air to try and gauge it. It was fucking hard work. And actually only now do I realise retrospectively now we've got all this help and management around it that we had this business we were running on our own basically until about six, nine months ago mm. while Pandora was also <laughs> pregnant and having her first baby and I was writing my first book. Uh, the reason I think it's important to talk about is I think that podcasts take so much time, as you know. Mm. Um, we should be getting 
they should be treated as a business. Yeah. So I think people should be armed with that information before they set out on this thing, because otherwise it will be too much of a drain on your time. So you're still in the middle of the Everything I Know About Love live tour. Is that right? Bang in the middle. Bang in the middle. What's the tour been like? It's been wonderful. Okay. It's totally a joy to turn what is quite a self-indulgent um, transmission of a memoir into a conversation. It's quite wonderful for for it to feel like it becomes more of a communal experience. Mm. And yeah, it's amazing. The, the, the energy in those rooms is amazing. Um, and I think, I think a lot of it is women aren't really given... Uh, there are hardly any men in the audience. There are f- always a few like begrudging husbands <laughs> who've been dragged there against their will. Um, but I think that having a space where... I'm just not interrupted. Mm. Like Lauren and I don't interrupt each other. We don't challenge each other in a confronting way. We don't belittle each other. It's just like women telling the truth mm. in all its kind of messy, disgusting, uncomfortable, beautiful glory. And then and then we take it to the floor and it's women kind of asking questions and sharing experiences. And it's it, I didn't realise how sacred that space what, sorry, I sound so hippie-ish. I didn't realise how rare it is to have find an all-female space like that. No, I, I definitely agree. I think with a lot of the stuff that I've done with women here, I you know host events and they tend to be all women. And I, yeah. they are markedly different from events where it's more of a mixed-gender crowd. Totally. And it's, it sounds a bit hippie-ish, but it is quite magical. Like you can't replicate that. It's really special. I'm curious as to how you went about sort of the process of translating your memoir and a book for a live audience like what was Mm. that process like you and Lauren planning it because I haven't seen it yeah unfortunately um but I almost I don't understand how you do that but obviously it's been phenomenally successful so I just want to understand how did you go about doing that well I so Lauren is like one of my oldest and closest friends we were in a band together when we were teenagers sadly um we write together we've made film like short films together so we have like a kind of creative strand to our relationship and talking together and and coming up with ideas and knocking stuff about is basically all we've done Mm. for 15 years so I didn't want it to be an interview I wanted it to be first of all me showcasing (laughs) this amazing person that I have in my life um who's just a great talker and very very funny I'm very very lucky that I get to drag her around um and I wanted it to be I wanted it to be a representation of the conversations that women of our generation have been having in pubs, in, you know, communal flat living rooms, in the office kitchen. I wanted it to feel that intimate and that truthful. I just wanted truthful conversation mm. and I wanted it to be funny. So we, it's, it's not really her interviewing me about the book. There's a little bit of that to steer it, but really it's a conversation between two women about generational anxieties, cultural touchstones and shared experiences. And also because, you know, I wrote that book when I was 28. I'm now 30 and a half to sound like Adrian Mole. <laughs> um, and... This sounds mad, but that is that weirdly feels like two entirely different people. I do think that is quite a big gap. I mean, it's only two years, but I think from 28 to 30, you're quite a drastically different... Pe- well, I certainly, two years ago, was quite a different person than the person I am now. I'm 28. Yeah. But I think... Oh, God, that's the big jump. Is do you it? know about Saturn's return? I do. I think I'm entering it. That's, is, is you know it, you can work it out on a calculator on your can phone. Can you? It's quite extraordinary. I, le- I worked mine out backstage everything I know about love live because a girl put her hand up and talked about it and we went onto this calculator and the six months that my Saturn return fell in 
was February 2016 for the following six months. And in that six months, I got a book deal, gave up dating, moved into a flat on my own. And what's the... I don't want to say concept of Saturn's return, but is it? Is uh, my understanding of it is that it's like this time of like seismic change yeah. in your life. Yeah, and you're lucky if you get th- if you have a long life, you'll get three. Um, most, you know, it's every around every thirty years. Okay. Do you? And when in- you think about your parents and and how they behave and the changes they go through, I think it makes sense. Because the other thing is as well is I've written this new chapter in the book about turning thirty, which. I think it's been quite galling for a lot of people because it's sort of like, I've discovered ageing. Um, from, from a 30-year-old. Let me tell you about hell. it. Exactly. No, and I totally get that. But I do <laughs> defend my right to have a crisis because everything feels already a bit different now I've turned 30 in lots of different ways. And when I look back on the crisis, I really did have a bit of a freak out before I turned 30. And I think the whole Saturn return thing, it's a Period now, I look at the age of about 28 to 30, it was almost like I was in a state of convalescence. I felt like I was recovering from my youth, really, mm. which had, you know, I'd put myself through the mill, really, with my 20s. And then you get to 30, and it's not like everything's suddenly easier, but it does feel, you know, if you if you live to 90, as the majority of our generation will, 25% of girls born in 1988 are going to live until they're 100. When you look at, when you get into 30, you're entering the second act. What about turning 30 freaked you out? What was it? I think I was incredibly nostalgic for my 20s before it ended. I think I have a, because I'm such a romantic and because I'm such a daydreamer and because I'm so head in the clouds, I have this extraordinary propensity to metabolise experience and and narrativize it and become incredibly wistful about it very fast. So I've always lived, and also I think it's because I've just written since I was about five. Mm. I've always lived through experience with an awareness of what era I'm in or what how it will be, how it will be viewed retrospectively. I think it was no, it was Margaret Atwood. I quoted it in my book. She said in one of her books, um, "You don't know a story is a story until you're on the other side of it." Only then when you look back do you realise what the story is. And I think I've always been preemptively trying to work out what that story is. So I think thinking of my 20s as being a period of time, and probably it was exacerbated by having to go around talking about this memoir and talk, reflecting on my 20s so much. I think I probably tied it up with a bow of um, neatness and, um, yeah, tinged it with this kind of rose-tinted romance uh, that meant saying goodbye to it suddenly felt like I was saying goodbye to an old friend. Mm. Um, so I think it's that. And then uh, to be totally honest, and this is a confronting thought, um, I think I, as a woman, I don't want to get old. And I didn't realise, I didn't realise that, I, I always thought that I'd pushed back on that. You know, I've been like reading Jermaine Greer since I was about 12. I'm very aware of how patriarchal snipers get into your head. And I've always felt like I've, that's something that I've been awake to. Mm. And then 30 approached and I started thinking about fertility. I started thinking about the lines on my head. I started thinking about the way that men talk to me and look at me. I don't like it, but I think a lot of it is. And then I think that sent me into even more of a crisis because realising that this kind of obsession with the currency of youth for women and the, what kind of passport that gives you in relationships with biology, in work, often especially the work that you and I do, mm. um, 
I think realising how much I had potentially been defined by that without realising was not pretty. No, I completely relate. I used to be, it's a joke with one of my best friends who always jokes about how, I've gotten over it now, but definitely in my mid-twenties, I was obsessed with age. Were you? Absolutely obsessed with it. If someone was successful... Um, oh, yeah, I would yeah, yeah. instantly kind of Google, Google like, ferret their out their age. age. Exactly the same. And I'd be like, okay, well, I've got, well, she, you know, published that at that age and I've still got time to mm. get to that point. And it's only now in the past two or three years where actually I found that I'm enjoying life more the older I get. That I'm like, actually, maybe getting older is a good thing. But and, I was, and question, did you do that for men? No, just women your age. No, oh yeah, just women. Like, I didn't shows, give a shit about what men exactly, were doing. Yeah, I was shows. measuring myself to other women working in media or journalism or writing yeah. creative women. I was obsessed with it. And this is a structure they've created to imprison mm, us in. It's definitely. fucking horrible. And it's also because I really enjoyed that feeling of being the youngest person totally, in the room. Totally. So I was always Entre quite young. Complex. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I was always quite young for the jobs I did, I worked in advertising and I always happened to be sort of younger than you'd expect someone at a certain position to be. Yeah. And so I really loved that. And I think the more that was kind of slipping away from me, I got really neurotic about panicked. it. Panicked, yeah. Completely panicked. Um, yeah. And it's only in the past kind of, like I say, the past couple of years that I've just been like feeling quite free of that. But I want to talk about the book mm. and the phenomenal success of it. It is staggering, I think, how well Thank it's done. You. and how many copies it's sold, but also I think what a kind of cultural impact it's had. Like I think there are <laughs> things, no, I, I really do think that. I think there are conversations that are being had now and people trying to emulate um, certain things about your book that, you know, just weren't happening 12 months ago. And I'm curious as to what stage, at what stage did you realise that it was an unusual success? It's been so incremental is, is the boring answer. Social media was a tool that I feel both... I, to be honest, I just feel very privileged to have had that tool with my book. Mm. I was about to say that that could be a curse. It's a curse because it's made me entirely self-obsessed. Mm. I feel like a monster of narcissism because of the last two years. And it is, you know, it caused me a bit of a break. Like I'd had a bit of a, well, a massive wobble this autumn. And I think... About social media? No, just about the fact that I'd become a professional personality. And um, I never wanted to become that. That's not what I ever wanted to do. And the problem is I really enjoyed it because deep down, you know, I'm just like an insecure, fat teenage girl in Stanmore. So any sense of, of that kind of external validation can can really be very addictive if you've got, if you carry low self-esteem forever. But the problem is when you, when you start relying on that, when it comes crumbling down. <laughs> Where does that go? And the problem also is that kind of thing sells books, like having like, you know, a brand about yourself, perish the word, but a brand or... Being a personality, that is mm. the kind of thing that people latch on to and it sells books. And to an extent, you kind of have to do that when you're promoting a book and you're everywhere yeah. and here and there. But it's not it's not the work that you sort of really want to... It's not what you want to be known for. Well, no, and I think what the problem is, is it, you, it leaves you with a distinct... It feels good when it's good. It feels good when you've got lots of people on Instagramming your book. Mm. You've got people recognising you. It was, mm. it was to be honest, it was, it was tiny, you know, celebrities tweeting about the book. Mm. It was very small moments like that, the bestseller list or whatever, this, these incremental moments where it, it was probably until about the summertime, so about six months of it being out, and I was like, oh, do you know what, I think this has done okay. I think this has been an okay <laughs> thing. And that feels so amazing. And in those moments, you're like, oh, I really am where I'm meant to be in life, and I really deserve this, and I really deserve, like you know, lots of applause. And I really deserve people saying all these gushy things about me on Twitter. Mm. I really deserve celebrity endorsements. I've worked hard. 
I've written a great thing and I really back this. And then the problem is, is that when, inevitably, when it does go wrong and there is some people who don't like you or there is a degree of backlash with it, whether it be in your work or my column that I wrote last week. Oh, yeah, I want to talk about that. Whenever you, you know, whenever there is a moment where that's taken away from you momentarily, because of course, you know, I'm first of all, I'm only human, so I'm going to make mistakes or people aren't going to connect with me or like my work. The problem is if you become so reliant on that other stuff without realising, I think I convinced myself it was because I was in this really secure place in my life because I'd pushed out this great book. And then in those moments when it wobbles slightly... Or, you know, you submit a treatment, you know, I work in TV as well, you submit a treatment and it's not right, or Mm. you get bad notes back on a script, or things start going wrong and you've just been used for this short period of time of being golden. Um, You just, if you're neurotic like me, you just come apart at the scene, or someone, yeah, someone writes a mean review, or a journalist doesn't like your work, suddenly, suddenly that goes. And then what's hard is that I don't really have much work from the last year other than talking about my book to pr- to prove my integrity to myself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So that at that moment I go, "Oh my god, I'm awful. Mm-hmm. I'm the worst person ever. This is all a lie. This mm-hmm. is a mirage. I've fooled everyone." And what do I have? I've got panel events, brands sending me free dresses, <laughs> lots of interviews, you know, on podcasts. What do I I've got nothing to prove. Like I've got I have no sense of purpose because when you're promoting a book like I have been doing for the last year and doing all the other stuff that I've been doing with my the high low and love stories and whatever and going on tour you have no space to write mm. so now what I've realized is the only way I'm going to be able to carry on in this industry and feel sane is I just have to write I can't I can't do any more professional personality stuff but that needs to take priority the writing so what boundaries are you putting in place in order to enable you to write because it's a time thing but also it's more than that how are you how are you doing that now uh so my last tour date is exeter which is 15th of march which is sort of in my head the funeral of everything <laughs> about love <laughs> oh my god you heard, heard it here first guys <laughs> as in i uh, i'm i'm not doing many literary festivals this summer um i won't be doing uh, I feel bad if my publicist <laughs> she does know this. I don't think I can do much more press for it. Yeah, I think I've, that's... I just feel like I, I've said all I can say really now about it. And but I had that with my book. Which, did you? Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Like, my publicist knows. And it's partly because I'm trying to work on another book. Mm. But I very clearly said to them, and it wasn't obviously to the same degree as, as your book, but, you know, the requests still come in. And now, actually, they know. They'll forward it on to me. They'll be like, I know you're kind of not doing anything anymore. I'm like, yeah. And are they respectful about that? Oh, completely, completely, completely respectful about it. We have a really good relationship. I'm lucky. I'm really good friends with my publicist, mm-hmm. my publisher, Julia, and my publicist, Jane and Poppy. And my agent is first, and this is the most tacky thing to say, first and foremost, she's a very good friend of yeah. mine. Um, but the other problem is as well is that, and this is the issue with doing the whole multi-hyphen thing. So I write scripts for TV. I write a book. Um, I have a column. And um, I do the high-low. Mm-hmm. So... That's a career divided into four. And when you have people demanding on all four sides of you things, mainly that isn't creation, it's to do with the admin or promoting of the creation, you you, you just get strung out. Like, you know, at the moment I've said to my publicist, I, I really can't do much more talking about everything I know about love. But then it's incumbent on me... I never realised, I'm sure you know this when you write a book, I never realised how incumbent it is on me to sell the damn thing. So they can only do so much. Yeah. I have to go out and do the legwork mm-hmm. and I don't want to let them down. I don't. I, I want it to do well in the bestsellers. I want it to sell lots, lots of copies for them. I want it 
So then you have that, and then you start selling it in foreign countries, and then you have all your foreign publishers every week. It's got a really you. long tail. Yeah, saying this German magazine wants to come round, and then you go on tour, and you have your tour managers saying we've only sold half the tickets for Cambridge. You need to do a, you need to do an interview with the Cambridge newspaper for an hour wow. this morning. So it's like that, and that's only just one quarter of of the career I'm trying to do. So it's, I sound like I'm ranting. I'm really not. I'm so grateful for it. I think I just. I hadn't quite anticipated, truly, I must say that as a caveat, this has been the best year of my life. It's been a dream come true. I'm so grateful for it. I wish I'd been slightly more prepared mm. for how much of that donkey work of publicity book writers have to do because people, as you know, people don't want to buy books anymore. Yeah, it's true. What's the what's the sort of oddest, almost challenging thing that's happened to you as a result of the book's success? Because... I don't know. I just feel like it's been so. Like you're a household name now. Like you were na- oh God, no, you were so name checked not. badly on University Challenge. That made me laugh. What was so it? Dolly much. Anderson. That made me laugh so much. They but thought I was a Love Island. I just, person. I just thought it was very funny. But you are a household name, and I presume oh, I really you get recognised quite a lot. What's been the sort of weirdest part of that kind of success? Uh, I actually, I, I don't mind that at all because first of all, it's normally so localised <laughs> to drunk PR girls in Soho on a Friday. It's <laughs> it's so like I could draw t- the grid of three streets where it You happens. know where, yeah, yeah, yeah if yeah. you want to avoid being seen. It's it's like, so. but, but it's also just such a, it's basically an extended group of people I work with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not, it's not anything more than that. Um, and it's such a brief moment of t- in time. It's not, this is only going to be like this for for one hot second. And I'm, I'm never going to write about myself like this again. I feel this primal need <laughs> to never, ever write about my personal life again. Um, so that, I don't, I actually really don't mind that. I think it's really lovely. And mm. you know what it's like. Writing is so, you know, lonely. Yeah. It's so nice to be sitting opposite you today, I take. And to talk about Literally, stuff. Yeah, like, no, no, just, I get you're it. on your own all the time. So <laughs> chatting to someone, having some like, pissed up girl in Burger and Lobster come up to me and tell me about her breakup. Like, that's great. Yeah. That's great. It's fun. I like that. Do you think there are any misconceptions about you in the public eye? Because there is a lot of information out there about you that you've put out there yourself. Mm. There's your books, there's your columns, there's a podcast, there's your Twitter, your Instagram, all of that. Mm. And I think I know you or a version of you and there must be thousands of people who feel that way as well. But I also am very aware of the fact that I don't really know you and there must mm. be other people who kind of think they know you, but they don't. Like, what are the misconceptions about you, do you, do you think, exist? Do you know, I'm so lucky. I'm so, so lucky. I feel tremendously understood by the people who read me, truly. It's <laughs> amazing. It's really nice. It's really nice. I really don't ever feel defensive. And any time that I get a criticism, uh, you know, it's, it's normally... They're normally bang on I mean I have no, to no I don't I didn't mean that in a sort of what critiques are there about you but it might even be something like people think you're really gregarious when actually you're like no I'm not really like I, I feel like there is a persona mm. around anyone who's kind of in the public eye to mm. that extent and it doesn't necessarily have to be you know actually people are kind of lobbying criticism at you no. because most of what I see is positive in fact all of yeah. what I see is positive so it was more of a do you ever feel kind of slightly misunderstood? But it doesn't no, sound that way. I feel very lucky. And I think a lot of that is by my own making because I've been constantly shouting out into the ether to anyone who listen. Here's who I am. Here are my stories. Here are my opinions on things. Um, it means that 
that I maybe have been allowed to control that narrative slightly. Um, but I think that's why going back to that shitstorm with my column last week, I uh, found that really hard. I realised why I found that reaction to that column so difficult. So can I just recap for yeah, anyone listening yeah, yeah. who hasn't read the column? Um, so it was last Sunday mm. and you wrote a column about the fact that you went to a private school and that that position comes with a tremendous amount of privilege and that you think that that has given you a huge advantage yeah. in certain areas, especially within media and journalism. And actually, I read it on Sunday morning and I was like, cool, like, I think this is good. I think more people <laughs> within... Of, no, but I, I actually one of didn't... the few journalists I, who defended me. I really appreciate it. I'm really... It. I, was, I was genuinely quite surprised because I didn't... Usually, if I think an article is quite controversial, I might go onto Twitter and be like, what are people saying about yeah, that? I didn't yeah. do that. Yeah. And then it was only later that I saw sort of a couple of things about it. And... First of all, what irritated me was the hypocrisy. A lot of people being like, oh, she's got this privilege. And it's like, well, yes, you've just admitted to that. And I think more people should do it. I think lots of people who have huge amounts of privilege, maybe not private school privilege, but maybe it's white privilege, just, you know, were lobbying all the criticism. And I was like, what What do people fucking expect you to do? I, I really did not get it. And I mm. talked about it with my friends as well, and they were mostly on the same page. But I, how did you feel about that? Do you know what? I've learned a couple of really important lessons from that. Okay. Uh it's interesting to me um, how you digested what that column is because that's never that's that's a totally accurate reading in terms of how it was presented. That never was what that column was meant to be. So there's a book out called Engines of Privilege, which I'm reading, which is brilliant. Very good um, by a historian and I think he's an economist, and it's about looking at it's called Britain's private school problem mm -hmm. and it's these two men who've written this book about how it's completely untenable to continue a society of democracy and supposed fairness and humanity and for the private school system to still be in place when you look at the margin of discrepancy of difference between the people who are privately educated and people who are say educated obviously case by case it's very different I'm talking very very generally mm -hmm. um and uh I said to my editors I'd I'm reading this book it's out this month. I think that private school is tragically and illogically unfair. I would like to write about that because the people who talk about the unfairness of private school are often the people who haven't benefited from it. So I thought it would be interesting for someone who has benefited from that system to talk about how unfair it is as someone who has been on the good receiving end of it. Because otherwise, if people aren't talking about that in privilege, in a place of privilege, the only time you read about private school in the context of someone in a place of privilege is fucking Rod Little or some <laughs> right-wing journalist, do you know what I mean, being incredibly defensive. So you don't, you don't, explore, you don't explore that other side of things. Yeah. I then wrote up this piece. The piece was, here's this book, here are some interesting stats from it. Um, here are some uncomfortable truths about how I think I've benefited from privilege. Which I thought was very honest because you gave quite specific examples which is another thing that I think privately educated people sometimes shy away from yeah I wrote this up and the, uh, the last line of the first draft that I wrote which I still have on my emails which I sent to my editor was there are no two ways about it the private school system is tragically illogically inexcusably unfair my editors then came back, and I must say, I have a great relationship with my editors mm -hmm. at Style. This is not me placing blame on them. Mm. This is placing blame on myself. Mm. They came back to me and they said, this whole thing has to be rewritten. We want all mention of the book coming out to be taken out. 
We want to make it more about um, the conflict of guilt that you feel. We want the ending needs to be less absolute because it's an only 700-word 700, 700 column and it hasn't earned that payoff because you haven't. it's not an op-ed. So you need to make it more of a question. And I went back and I said, well, I don't have any questions. I don't have any... My, my, I have a definitive answer, which is I've experienced the benefit of it and it's fucking unfair. Mm. And... We, they said, but, you know, it went back and forth and back and forth. I did five edits of that column. I should have known this was the most inflammatory topic I've ever written about. It's so inflammatory. I should have known at edit number five that we were on two different pages, that what they wanted from that column, which was me to explore guilt around privilege, which is not what I ever wanted to write about. What I wanted to write about is how unfair private school is from someone who has benefited from the pros. They also said to me, look, I think you need, you're being too self-flagellating. You need to explore... Um, the fact that it's not just your schooling that has got you where you are. So I, bearing in mind, I'm. This is not an excuse. I'm. I was on tour. I was writing this in a hotel at one a.m. The final edit that I did. I was so tired, and it was going to press the next day. It done draft after draft after draft. And bearing in mind, I don't have colleagues, so it's not like I'm on my own. And I wish what I'd done is sent it to Sophie Wilkinson or Pandora, one of my friends who are journalists, because I know they would have said to me this isn't what you wanted to write. This is going to be reframed in a different way. And I didn't. So then I wrote, so then I just wrote in it, you know, even though I have been tremendously privileged, I've worked tremendously hard. But those things are true. And I think I... I know, but the other to... problem is, sorry, just to finish, the other problem is, which I should have realised, is the Sunday Times is behind a paywall. So all it takes <sighs> is one chippy person to cut that paragraph as a screenshot, mm. circulate it. No one will ever read the rest of the article. Mm. And going back to your original question, it was the first time properly in my career as a journalist where I felt so misunderstood. And Don't I've... Me. No, it's totally fine. But what it made me realise is I'm so lucky because I think people online, particularly women in the public eye and women sharing their stories feel misunderstood every fucking day online and it's the first time I realized like wow you've been really really lucky because mm -hmm. this is because I told my friends who are journalists and I was like you know there's been this horrible snarky backlash and they went online and they were like it really hasn't been that Bad. Also, that's another thing. I think it is worth pointing out. Maybe it feels, it probably looms quite major in your mind. I don't think there was a huge backlash. I think um, the reception was mixed. I think some people like me really agreed with what you'd said and others did not. And I think there are agendas on both sides. For my my take on it, when I read it, I didn't think it was, I thought it was a good column. I, when I say it, I don't think it was exceptional, but I didn't think it was saying something particularly controversial. I thought yeah. it was just the truth. Funnily enough, I'm writing about uh, my experience of private schooling yeah. as part how, of my book. How are you finding that? Um, fine. I don't feel any guilt about going to private school and mm. maybe that's going to get me a backlash, but I just don't. And there are lots of things that I think about private schools. I think that I'm tremendously lucky to have been to one. I am very aware of the unfairness of the system and I do think private schools should be abolished. And that's, yeah. you know, I think we kind of have a similar mentality on it in terms of wanting to sort of put that idea out there and be like, as a private school person, we I think this system is unfair exactly. because I know how, how much extraordinary exactly. my education was. Exactly. And I think it's unbelievable that, that is only available to a select few. I understand it. Because it is such a hugely unfair system that's not accessible to very many people. I can see why I think had I not been to private school, maybe I'd kind of react the same way. But. Because I think the other problem is as well is that I very much highlighted the the extraordinary difference, as you said. Right. The, my it sounded, cost. and I think some people might interpret that as bragging, but it's like, no, 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 no. Look at how unbelievable this is. Yeah. Everyone should have that. Yeah. I think, as you said, 
any time that someone checks their privilege. The other problem is, is that I think that what people thought was, and we, we've, this is a danger, that we're constantly saying to people, be transparent about your privilege. And when someone is transparent about their privilege, often the reading of it is, oh, well, you think you're such a fucking progressive good person. What do you want, a fucking cookie? Yeah. And it's like, well, I no, I, I don't actually. I, do, I don't want to be commended just for acknowledging the leg up I've had in life. Um, but equally, the other side of that is that that is just stating privilege is going to upset people because it's going to remind people of the unfairness in life. And if I hadn't been on the good end of it, as you said, maybe I would have read my column and that would have just re-angered me yeah, <laughs> with yeah. all the things I've missed out on. I think there are maybe uncharitable readings of the intent of that column. Um, and I'm I'm glad, I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm glad you wrote it. Oh, um, and I think it. more people who have various types of privilege, especially private school privilege, but, you know, there are lots, should be more willing to face up to that. So mm. that's, that's... I can't wait to read your chapter on it. Yeah, well, we'll see. I might have to haste. I'm not, I'm not editing anything. I'm, I said what use, I said. You can use me as a you dry have, run. You have been my canary down the mine, being perfectly honest. That's why I was tracking the responses with uh, quite a lot of interest. I was like, oh, right. I literally said to my friends, I was like, this has been quite an eye-opener yeah. for me. My so. favourite tweet was a girl who wrote, oh, by the way, everyone, Dolly Alderton has solved the social mobility <laughs> crisis. <laughs> I mean, it's a start. It's a start. But I want to talk about money because it's, it's a topic I'm obsessed with. Yeah. And I want to understand what role money has played in your career choices. Because I am, you seem like you've wanted to be a writer from a very young age and you mm. pursued that really doggedly from a very young age. How did you know that you could make a living out of being a writer? Because I've also wanted to be a writer for a long time, but I just never even entertained it because I was like, who gets paid to be a writer? It just didn't seem like a viable career path. So I want to understand how you decided to pursue that anyway. Do you know, I've got one person to thank for really changing how I think about money. And that's Pandora Sykes, who I co-host the podcast with. She has the most extraordinary amount of business now. Mm -hmm. And she truly believes that there should there's no reason why you can't pursue fulfilling and creative endeavours that speak your truth and share your vision of the world and keep your integrity intact and not make not just a bit of money from that but really really good money from mm. that 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 those two things aren't in opposition that you should want both those things for yourself no one had really said that to me before I met her and I think I thought I think I thought that I would write and I want all I wanted was to just make a living mm. all I wanted was to be able to rent a flat I never thought I'd live on my own. I thought I, I just didn't think that I would ever have the money to do that. I thought that I, or maybe not well into my maybe late 30s or something, I thought that I'd, I just wanted to be able to go out for dinner a couple of times a week <laughs> and share a flat in zone two with my mates. Yeah. So for me, when I went freelance and it was so difficult to make money, my top idea in my head of what I wanted my salary to be was really not the idea of, of like, of like making good money, aspiring mm. to wealth was just never in my thought process because it just wasn't the most important thing at the time. Um, and then truly I, it was, I think a lot of it was pa talking to Pandora uh, when I met her when I was about 26 um, and realising that not only is it not crass to want to make money for yourself, it's admirable might not be what everyone wants but you know for various reasons 
in my past in my family life I've seen what it is to have lots of money and I've seen what it is to have very 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 little mm. and um I know which one I would prefer yeah and I know which one is easiest mm. I think I mean I can agree more with that I've never really been particularly shy about wanting to make money really no 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 I've always I mean, I, and my background being that I, you know, grew up in a council estate and didn't have huge amounts of money when I was a kid when I was younger. But now I'm like, when people ask me what motivates me, I'm like, money. And then I'm yeah. like, oh, and, and, and the other stuff as well. But I don't no, I think, think the two cool. things are direct I, I, or an opposition. And I just also, without sounding cliched, like, I just, I don't think we would have a problem. I think if a bloke who grew had half a life on a council estate and then kind of understood wealth more and what, sorry, I actually don't know your background. No, no, so no. That's no, me speaking whatever, for yeah. you, but... You know, someone, That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, and someone who's seen, but you know, and I have a very similar stuff going on with my family that I've yeah. seen both sides, yeah. which I don't ever talk about because mm. they're very private people. And that's, but again, that's another huge assumption I think that's made about me mm. um, that I've only ever experienced sort of enormous wealth and privilege. And I have, you know, experienced a lot of privilege in my life, um, but I have also seen what it is like to worry about to money. really, really struggle and properly, properly worry and be worried about how you're going to live and I think if we met a bloke <laughs> from yeah who grew up on a council estate and then understood what saw what wealth was like and how it made life easier and then wanted to work really fucking hard and wanted to write books by their mid-20s and wanted to start start a network of like-minded working men. <laughs> working men I think we would think that he was an astonishing astonishing young person and there's a real double standard that wanting money when you're a woman is narcissistic and greedy. And um, it's, un, it's seen as unfeminine. I think. Unfeminine and selfish, Definitely. yeah. That's another thing I'm covering in my book. So I feel oh, like I can't I'm, wait to I'm read supposed to be book. plugging your book and here I am. No, 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 I truly can't. When, when we were outside chain smoking at Elizabeth Day's oh, shit. 40th birthday. My mum doesn't know I smoke, so now you've, <laughs> you've lifted the veil on that. But carry well, on, please you, do carry on. When you told me uh, about your book, I just, well, Pandora and I were both there and I remember Pandora and I, leaving after so I was like god I can't wait to read that book Aww. I'm always desperate to talk about money I'm desperate you know what the most liberating thing about writing this book and immersing myself in the topic of money is it's given me license first of all I've completely the boundaries of what's socially acceptable to talk about with money and what's not have completely blurred for me mm. and you know I ask people really pointed really direct questions and then sometimes I have to backtrack and be like god is that because to me, it's all normal now. Like, yeah, no, you tell do. me a salary, what did yeah. you make? This is what I made. This is what they paid me. This is what I got paid for my book. All of that stuff is mm. just there. And it's so liberating. And I great. promise you, it transparency around money just definitely improves not only your relationship with money, but your ability to make more money. Your like, confidence. Exactly. Totally. totally. Um, it's going to be a really powerful thing, this book, I think. I Sorry, so. that's me talking like I'm... <laughs> Like your manager. <laughs> it's so weird that I just no, said I love, that. No, I love hearing I that. It's brilliant. I see big things for you, honey. Um, no, well, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that but was such a bossy you, thing. You, I just meant I'm very excited about no, it. No, thank you. It. That's nice. I think you've turned turned the tables on me, become something in the interviewer, which is good because I want to talk about your interviewing mm. and love stories in particular, which I love oh, so much. Me. I think it's such a brilliant series. I, it's hard to pick a favourite and actually I think each episode I'm like oh that's my favourite that's my favourite I loved the episode of Lolly last week I loved with Stanley Tucci and you are a really really brilliant interviewer and so Thank I you. want to know exactly how you prepare for an interview how do I prepare I think I um, I do I do do quite a lot of reading you can tell around them and I think 
you know, you adapt, you adapt with different interviewees. I'm sure that you have this. I think, you know, naturally in life, I'm, I'm very, I think I'm not like a social chameleon at all. In fact, I was like that in my 20s and that proved to be very bad because it meant I was just kind of constantly trying to please everyone. But I do think I've always been very aware of what people need and trying to accommodate the space for them. I don't think I always succeed, but it is something in a social situation I'm always kind of aware of. And you know, small things like from what I'd read about Stanley Tucci, from what I'd heard about him, everything, every interview I'd seen, I knew that he was a man who loved food. I knew he was Italian. I knew he was warm. I knew he was, um, you know, charming, convivial. I completely fell in love with him listening. Oh, do you know what's really <laughs> weird as well? He's the most masculine man oh, I yeah. think I've ever met, He's... which I was not expecting. But his voice is so attractive. Yeah. It was really something. I was jealous of you but anyway <laughs> carry on but I knew meeting him that it would be a big hug and mm. chat about what our dinner would be that evening mm. and I knew it was going to be warm cozy intimate chat I knew that that's a place he felt comfortable that's just I knew that from researching about him when I did Lily Allen who is today's episode I'd read her book I knew that she is someone who was uncomfortable with too much uh, gushing affection. Uh, I know that she describes herself as someone who's quite cautious and quite cold. And I know she's someone who's been very betrayed, particularly by journalists. So the so the way I saw Stanley when I saw him is I walked over to him with open arms as he walked into the Penguin Studios and said, Stanley, can't wait to, for this discussion. We had a big hug. The way when Lily came in is I put my hand out and shook it and I said, Lily, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Can I get you anything? How can I make you feel more comfortable? And it was very formal. I didn't make small talk with her. I didn't tell her about my life. I didn't ask her about her personal life because I had just gauged that that is a way that she was going to feel more comfortable chatting to me, that I wasn't some smarmy journalist trying to become her best friend. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just about doing the appropriate research with people and sensing their energy when they're in the room of what's going to make them feel more com most comfortable to open up and Every person is different. You have to assess person by person how you're how you're going to deal with them because you want to get the most out of them conversationally. On today's segment of Ask Ortega, a letter from a recent uni graduate who's not quite sure about the path they found themselves on. Here it is. Dear Ortega. I'm 21 and six months into my first graduate job at a big four audit firm. It's a three-year graduate scheme and alongside my day-to-day -day work, I also have to study for an accounting qualification as part of the scheme. I feel really lucky to have this job because the starting salary is so good and I know that loads of people would give their right arm to work for a big four firm, but it's making me absolutely miserable. The job is nothing like I thought it would be. It was described as an advisory slash consulting role, but it's actually just a straight-up accounting role. I never expected or wanted to have a job as an accountant. I studied classics and English at university and through luck happened to be offered work experience at this firm, which eventually led to an interview. I accepted the job because I didn't have any other job offers upon leaving university and I thought I might as well give it a shot. However, since joining, I've been completely overwhelmed by the accounting exams I have to sit. The work doesn't feel meaningful or purposeful and it certainly doesn't inspire passion. I want to leave, but I'm locked into a three-year contract and I'm scared that if I quit, the firm will make me pay for the cost of the tuition I've had. The only way to exit the contract is if I'm fired for failing an exam. So far, I've passed six out of 15 of them and have three more coming up in June. So this is my conundrum. Despite feeling overwhelmed and anxious about the job and the exams, should I stick out for three years and gain work experience and a professional qualification that could eventually pay off in the future? 
Or should I quit now or tactically fail an exam since I'm so unhappy and start searching for other jobs but risk being invoiced by my firm for the tuition? I am very conscious that in complaining about a well-paid job that gives me financial security, I speak from a place of privilege. But I don't want to only be happy two out of seven days a week. And at the moment, I'm not even happy then because I spend most of my evenings and weekends studying for these exams. I'd really appreciate your take on this. Yours sincerely, The Reluctant Accountant. God, this letter really took me back to that awful post-graduation period where everybody was just kind of scrambling around to find a job and the crazy pressure to choose a career path because it felt like that's what you're meant to be doing when you're 21. And also the flip side of that, which is the sense of sort of crushing failure if you fail to find a job or the disappointment when you did find a job that you'd chosen and it just wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Um, you honestly couldn't pay me to go back to that stage of my life and I hope that doesn't sound too insensitive but what I'm trying to say is that you are going through a really difficult period and it's not easy so you're quite right to be stressed and to be feeling a bit out of sorts if it's any comfort your situation isn't at all unusual I've been there lots of people listening to this now have probably been there some of your fellow grad scheme recruits are probably also feeling the same Um, the post-graduation period is really stressful Uh, so preamble aside what should you do I mean, to me, the answer seems pretty obvious, which is that you should quit. You should hand in your notice. Uh, This isn't the job you signed up for. I think by your own admission, you really fell into this job via a series of happy accidents and no doubt your own hard work. But just because you found yourself there doesn't mean that you have to stay there. I think why train to be an accountant when you already know that you don't want to be one that just doesn't seem to make sense to me it doesn't seem like a good idea also I think realistically if you're struggling to kind of find the enthusiasm after just six months in I promise you by a year or two years in you'll be even more unhappy and stressed and that's if you even make it that far Um, I think even if your lifelong dream was to become an accountant I think you'd probably still find all the studying and extra qualifications quite stressful so I'm not sure how you're actually finding the motivation to do all of that when you already know you don't even want to be an accountant I think it's very self-aware of you to recognise that you're objectively in a good job with a good salary that lots of other people would like, but that's literally not a reason to stay in your job. I think having been in a similar position of hating a job that I know that other people would kill for, I know that doesn't make a jot of difference to your own enjoyment. Um, If those other people want your job or they can go out and get one like it, that's not a reason to stay in your job just because other people would like it. Um, On a more practical level, what I think you should do is, first of all, don't tactically fail an exam If you do manage to do that and get yourself fired from this job, that is going to follow you around for much longer than simply quitting your job and passing on good terms. Um, And there's not, you know, it's not to say that they might not then make you pay back the tuition fees because you've kind of breached your contract by failing. So don't tactically fail. I think it's never good to sort of go out on a low. I think realistically, you should just broach it with your employer and speak to your manager as soon as possible. And just be really honest with them, I think. Just tell them that this isn't the role that you thought it would be, that you're not enjoying it and that you don't necessarily think that this is kind of for you. Um, You said that you're a big four firm. Maybe they might be able to move you into kind of a consulting arm. I think loads of those big four firms are kind of made up of multiple subdivisions and consulting tends to be one of them. So you kind of said that that's what you'd expected it to be or you might prefer to do that. So that might potentially solve your problem if you generally think that's the kind of work you want to be doing. So maybe they can just kind of shift you around a bit and solve your problem. Um, But if not, I'd be really, really surprised if they made you pay back the tuition fees for the first six months, to be honest. I kind of have a fairly good idea of how these companies work and they do account for potential dropouts and an attrition rate. You know, they hire more people at that kind of graduate level than they really expect to make it through the kind of three years. 
And they'd also have to be pretty vindictive to force a 21-year-old university graduate who took a job in good faith to pay back an amount that to them is, you know, just a drop in the ocean. And it's just also not in their interest to force you to stay on just to kind of avoid that bill. So it doesn't serve them to have someone who isn't committed to the job, not enjoying it and plans to leave once they finish their training. Um, so I would bear that in mind. It probably feels like you've done something wrong, but to be honest, they'll probably be glad that you've brought it up early enough before they've invested even more significant time and resources into you. Um, but yes, I would speak to your manager as soon as possible to see if you can move into a different division. And if not, then I think handing in your notice is a bit of a no-brainer considering all the stuff you've said about how little you want to be doing this job and how you don't even want to do it in the long term. I'm not sure, you haven't mentioned what your situation is in financial terms. You didn't mention how, you know, you might potentially make things work once you've left, left this job, if there's a gap between this job and starting a new job, and whether, you know, maybe moving back home with your parents for a while might be an option. Hopefully that is. But more generally, I just want to reassure you about the sort of position that you found yourself in. I think everyone makes missteps at this stage of life, and it's really not that uncommon. It probably feels like a really big deal to you, but I assure you, someone who has been there, done that, it's really not. I think there's a lot of pressure to kind of find your path as soon as you've graduated uni, which, when you think about it, is completely ridiculous. Um, this isn't going to define your life or your career or even your 20s. It's just a brief moment in time. And I think you're actually really lucky that you've realised so early on and with such clarity that this isn't the path for you. Because I see lots of people carry on well into their 20s and 30s and 40s before they come to the conclusion that you've come to. You know, you're still so young and so early on in your career. So just try not to be so hard on yourself. And yeah, just write this off and concentrate on trying to figure out what it is you do want to do for a living. If you've got a career question you'd like my advice on during next month's Ask a Take a segment, just email podcast at womenwho.co and let me know what's on your mind. And that's it for this month. Thank you for tuning in. For more career inspiration and information, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup, or to apply for a space on our mentor workshop. You can find me at Otega Uagbo on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, don't forget to buy a copy of Everything I Know About Love, which you can find on Amazon or all good bookshops. If you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe. And as always, please leave us a lovely five-star review whilst you're there. See you next time. Yeah. Uh,